Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and MoneyWise magazines. I'm Carl Caldwell, Deputy Editor of Money Observer. I am joined by Faith Glasgow, the editor of Money Observer. Coming up in this podcast, Faith and I will be chatting to Douglas Brody, manager of the Bailey Gifford Global Discovery Fund. We also will be joined at the end of the podcast by Theodore Dillock, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, who, as usual, will run through one of Interactive Investor's Super 60 fund choices. As ever, we start off with the latest news and developments in the fund world. And I thought the first thing that was worth discussing is that fund sales are booming. The latest figures from the Investment Association, which is the trade body for the funds industry, shows that £4.7 billion was put into retail funds in May, which built on positive fund flows in April when just over £4 billion was invested. There are a couple of interesting trends in the buying behaviour of retail investors in May. Faith, what did you view as the main highlights? I think the first thing to flag up is that at the moment, it's very clear that active funds are proving more popular than passive funds and trackers. Around £3.5 billion went into active funds in May, compared with just £1.3 billion going into tracker funds. I wonder whether that is a sign that investors are trusting fund managers to pick stocks so as to beat the market as it recovers, rather than just following the index up and down, particularly given that the strong performance that we've seen over the past couple of months has been concentrated really in only a few sectors, well, notably technology and and healthcare. It's possible also that investors are tending to steer clear of, of passive funds because they are still very aware of the fact that there may be a market fall, more market falls to come, and that if that's the case, then index trackers have got nowhere to go except downwards. In terms of sectors, um, which sectors are they are the retail investors particularly favouring at the moment? Global funds for a second month was the most popular fund sector, uh, and that was followed by North America. Interestingly, though, the other sectors in the top five were all really quite defensive. There were two fixed income sectors, global and sterling corporate bonds, and a money market sector, which I think came in at, at uh, second place. Interestingly, again, um, the really clever money would have been actually in smaller company sectors. If we were looking at, at, at growth over the month of May, the Japanese smaller company sector was up by almost 12%, for example. European smaller companies and American smaller companies, both you know, heading for 10% growth, they, that was really where it was concentrated. So although global funds and North American funds did do well, over the month. They were not the leaders in terms of performance. The other thing I think it's worth mentioning is that SRI, Responsible Investment, Sustainable Investment Funds, are still very much a flavour of the month. They have sustained their strong momentum by pulling in close to a record billion pounds for a second month in a row. And yet, extraordinarily, despite all the column inches that has been written about 
sustainable investing. These funds only account for around 2.5% of the total invested in funds. So they've still got a very long way to go. In terms of the the fund sectors that are out of favour, the worst selling sector was Europe excluding UK, which saw around £450 million flowing out of it. Kyle, this sector has, has had a terrible time recently. Last month, it saw outflows of around 200 million. Can you put your finger on why this is the case? It seems to be a sector that um, investors just simply don't want to buy at the moment. Um, over the past year, the sector has posted outflows um, in every single month, bar one, which was um, December 2019. And it's not just retail investors that are um, ignoring the sector. Um, professional investors have also been selling a couple of um, notable multi-managers, including the team at Jupiter and also Witten Investment Trust. I think one of the reasons is because um, it's, Europe is perceived to be um, old-fashioned and there's a, there's a lack of technology stocks in European indices. I think that is one of the, the main reasons why at the moment investors are simply not investing in Europe. But nonetheless, there are a lot of world-class companies listed in Europe and they're really not focusing on, their, their, their main markets are not necessarily in Europe at all. It's just where they happen to be listed. It, it seems strange that they are not attracting more attention. I think it's an issue of perception, really. While the US has the exciting, you know, fang stocks, Europe has the more boring granolas. Um, they may be boring, but um, they are very resilient businesses that produce you know, strong share price returns over the past decade for investors. Going forward in a more difficult economic environment. These sort of stocks, their resilient qualities should continue to shine through. Some examples of the granolas are the likes of GlaxoSmithKline, Roche, Nestle, Novartis, AstraZeneca. You know, these are these are businesses that you would typically see in the majority of um, of fund managers' portfolios, both in Europe and, and indeed in the in for uh, UK fund managers as well. Moving on to the next news item, we at Money Observer reported on the best and worst fund performers in the first half of 2020. While the majority of the thousands of funds have left investors nursing paper losses following uh, coronavirus, there have been some notable winners. In a nutshell, uh, those funds with a large slice of exposure to technology and healthcare businesses have fared well, including uh, Bailey Gifford's uh, Global Discovery Fund, and we will be chatting to the fund manager, Douglas Brody, shortly. But Faith, do you mind running through the five top fund performers over the period of six months, 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Kyle. I mean, as you said, technology and healthcare really seem to be the core theme of this entire podcast, it feels like. The top five funds really have all, have all or four of the five have got a, a strong technology bias to them. We've got Morgan Stanley US growth, which is up by 64%. Matthews China small companies, which is up by 63% and, and is again very technology focused, but also, of course, has has exposure to the Chinese market, which posted one of the strongest recoveries after the coronavirus shutdown. In fourth and fifth place, we've got a couple of Bailey Gifford funds. We've got Bailey Gifford American and Bailey Gifford Long-Term Global Growth. And as we'll hear from Douglas in a few minutes, really, Bailey Gifford is all about these strong growth stocks, technology and healthcare being prime amongst them. The uh, third fund on the list is LF Ruffer Gold, which is um, completely 
not have focused on technology, obviously. It's up by 56% over the half year, basically because when the pandemic struck and the economy went into lockdown, uh, investors just ran for gold as a safe as a safe haven and demand really just pushed the price of the precious metal up by more than 20% over the year even during the, the recovery since march gold has continued to be in demand and that's really partly because people are still feeling quite cautious about what might happen next and partly because there is concern that inflation may become an issue as governments worldwide start pumping money into their economies to try and reboot them. In terms of the losers, UK funds have been among the biggest laggards, which account for five of the bottom 10 fund performers. The worst three performers are the ASI UK Recovery Equity, which uh, lost 42.5%, LF Equity Income, which is formerly named LF Woodford Equity Income, which is down 42.4%, and Aberforth UK Smaller Companies, which has lost 34.2%. And in addition, there were a number of energy funds in the bottom 10 following the spectacular oil price decline in March. That was presumably due to a mix of fear of a global slowdown because of coronavirus and and the um, price war that went on between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which are two of the world's largest producers. Given that that most UK equity income funds are very reliant on holdings such as Royal Dutch Shell and BP, and and they're going to figure in their top 10 because they're such reliable dividend payers, this also contributed uh, in quite a big way to the underperformance of UK equity income funds in the first half of the year. That's very true. Obviously, these these funds have not performed very well at all in the first six months of 2020. It's worth putting out that those who do invest in a fund should be looking to do so as five years as a minimum um, time horizon. I suppose the heavy losses, particularly in the case of some of those UK equity income funds, highlights this point in showing how short-term losses can be very painful. For the next part of the podcast, we are joined by Douglas Brody, Fund Manager of the Bailey Giffords Global Discovery Fund. Douglas, thank you for your time today. Pleasure to be here. The Bailey Gifford Global Discovery Fund is a popular fund amongst investors of Interactive Investor, and many will know already that the fund focuses on companies operating in industries with the potential for structural change and innovation. So to start off with, Douglas, could you give us a bit more detail about the fund's approach and explain the sort of attributes you look for in a business? Sure. First and foremost, we are growth investors. We buy shares in companies where we see significant scope for that company to be uh, larger, both through growth in sales and and ultimately profits of that business. So we have a smaller company's skew to how we do that and to where we look for our ideas. Uh, We want to buy our ideas when they are small, when they are early on that potential growth path, when they are arguably below the radar. And we want to own them as they grow, as they blossom into large, successful, potentially household names. So when we set the fund up a little short of a decade or so ago, it was driven by a growing sense that maybe the, the conventional way of doing smaller company investing was perhaps doing a sort of poor job and and really missing out on that bigger, perhaps much simpler opportunity. Buy things when they're small, own them as they become large. And and by conventional, I mean that that very regional approach that often people use or 
or splitting the market cap uh, very rigidly by size, small cap, mid cap, large cap, etc. We stripped that back. We d- decided to go with a much more global approach, both for where we looked for these companies, that they could be anywhere, but also in terms of the ambition that we wanted to see from these companies. Uh, we wanted to, for them to be approaching their end markets with a sort of global relevance, aspire to be global leaders in their fields. We set up the fund with no market cap related trigger sell point. We still own companies like Tesla, which is now a sort of $200 billion market cap business. So in short, we really up the ante in terms of the growth that we wanted to see from these potential holdings. We want them to have a deeply innovative problem-solving streak to what they seek to do, often using a range of underlying technologies and tools to to do that. We expect them to be entrepreneurial. Uh, They are frequently founder-run, very ambitious, very mission-led businesses that often want to change their respective industries, that they would often appear quite disruptive in that regard. And as they go on that journey, as they carve their own path, often in directions that other other competitors would fear to go, we often see those businesses carve out a very long-term structural competitive position. And lastly, we look for companies that as, as they go on that journey from sort of small upstart to, to large successful businesses, for them to have a degree of sort of scaling advantage at an intrinsic scalability to what they to what they do and what they offer. And by that, I really mean a sort of growth profile that becomes easier as they grow and as they become more dominant. So classic sort of network effects or, or platform arguments. And maybe it might just be worth bringing that to life with one of our one of our larger examples. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very familiar with Acado. It's fundamentally a problem-solving business. Consumers increasingly want the convenience of online for their grocery purchases, but without the downside of substitutes or damaged products. And, and grocers increasingly recognize they need to offer this in a way where the economics work for them, not just where they're layering in more costs to their existing infrastructure. And, and as we see with COVID, it's effectively just exacerbated that on, on both sides. So in providing a highly automated, high throughput, grocery-centric warehouse, that, that is the problem-solving element in terms of Tim Steiner. You have the visionary founder, seen the business through challenging times and is deeply ambitious in terms of what he wants to achieve. And after around sort of 20 years or so of doing this, designing, running these warehouses, the accumulated knowledge that Ocado's built up, the software, the logistics, the robotics, that ultimately forms the competitive position. And in that regard, you now have something that is it's sort of solved the problem for all the other grocers around the world, just at the point that they hit the the crisis in terms of their own business and Ocado sat there with this readily scalable proposition. So again, hopefully that that brings it to life a little bit more in terms of our our philosophy of what we look for in companies. Definitely. In terms of performance, um, I'm sure you've not had any complaints from investors over long time periods, five, 10 years, um, the fund has produced some really strong performance numbers. The fund has performed remarkably well in the first six months of 2020. Um, It held up obviously very well during the sell-off and performed well during the recovery that has taken place since late March. Has the strong level of performance in the first six months even surprised you? Firstly, and and maybe rather obviously, we weren't positioning the fund with some sort of expectation that a, that a crisis was around the corner, be it a pandemic or an economic crisis. We built the fund around our approach and that philosophy that I that I described earlier. But if you distill st- down what we do, our style of investing is about being on 
commercially relevant frontiers of innovation and long-term structural change. And in the modern world, that tends to be driven by digital-type technologies, digital things pushing into a whole range of areas, be it you know how we travel, buy goods, treat disease, etc. And without wanting to be sort of dismissive of the, the challenges that lie ahead, because they, they, are, they are numerous from a sort of macroeconomic perspective, we think the bigger lessons from the historical archives of you know plagues, famines, wars, etc., through to more modern ones like dot-com, crashes and, and financial crises, you tend to find these events so that they act as a sort of deep impetus for the powerful forces of, of ingenuity, innovation, resourcefulness, just that that shock factor tends to push the world forward and almost the bigger the shock, the more far-reaching the the, the the adaptations and the responses to that. And what we found is that some of our some of our holdings have proved to be exceptionally resilient, even advantaged by the, the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Almost the, the frontiers that those companies were on just became much much more relevant and move very, very quickly. So you could pick out um, heightened volatility and, and liquidity stress in bond markets has helped drive volumes towards market access, one of our uh, largest holdings is, is an electronic bond trading platform. You had all the closure of, of education establishments, and that, that's pushed the rise of sort of online learning tools and, and helped one of our businesses called Chegg, based in the US. You had the, the, the closure of GP clinics and, and aspects within hospitals, and that, that sort of really pushed adoption of telemedicine and, and virtual doctor consultations. As I sort of hinted earlier on, you've also seen it with Ocado as well, that some of these businesses, they've been chucking away at these things for ages, but all of a sudden, a, a crisis comes along and it just melts that inertia and the skepticism that is is so often the, the barrier to, to progress. And so I think I, I can rationalize why the fund's done well, but it's much more that that sort of it, some of the themes that we were invested in have really come to the fore and moved moved forward. I suppose that's kind of underpinned by the, the fact that the fund has got 37% of its investments are in healthcare and a further 20% are in technology businesses. I'm just wondering, taking a kind of look back to when the the fund was set up, how have the allocations changed since since 2011? Those two sectors would have been consistently large parts within our within our portfolio. Routinely, I would say making up in in, in combination probably north of 50 percent for, for for several years. It's not something we especially track, particularly the technology weighting, because the the, the impact of technology extends in our fund well beyond the sort of arbitrary sector definition of, of technology. Technology is so pervasive in so many aspects of our lives now. And, you know, arguably a business like Ocado is, is more a technology company than it is a than it is a traditional grocer. Many of our biotechnology companies are applying technology in that context of, of healthcare. Healthcare and, and attitudes to healthcare is probably one of the areas of the world that will change the most over the next 20 years. So we're very comfortable having a, a sizable component of the portfolio uh, positioned towards that. Now that will be driven up by the driven by the idea generation, and you know we don't set out to have a target in that area. But if you take our healthcare positions currently, about half of that would relate to companies innovating around sort of new rational drug-based therapies. The other half would be a sort of amalgamation of different medical-related technologies, be it companies doing things in diagnostics or chronic care management. Um, we have a holding in a business called Dexcom, which does real-time blood glucose monitoring for, for diabetic patients. It could be examples like Teladoc, the leading telemedicine company, and video consultations and all the, the medical workflows that you can build into those things. So yeah, healthcare is broad. Healthcare is changing. It's just the, the, the change cycles in healthcare take a long time 
time. It's a heavily regulated industry with lots of sort of inertia in it. But it's when it moves, it does move in a profound way. It just is long cycles of innovation. Just to follow on from that, obviously a lot of um, these uh, technology and healthcare businesses are listed in the US on the US stock market. I assume this is one of the reasons why the fund has around two thirds of its assets in US businesses. It's a market that for a long time has been judged as expensive versus um its history. Is there a risk that these tech and healthcare businesses are pretty highly valued? And and added to that, how important is the performance of the US market versus the rest of the world? The US is a phenomenally deep opportunity set when it comes to finding great ideas, particularly with that philosophy that we have when you look for great growth companies. Just that, that culture of building businesses in their early years, growing them, listing them, and that sort of growth mindset that the equity markets there operate to. I don't see that changing. Other parts of the world will catch up. But just to say that the US is, is particularly good at doing that. To your point around valuations, look, as a, as a long-term investor, you have to be forward-looking uh, when it comes to valuations. And, and, and that's always been the case. You have to kind of postulate where a business might get to. But what are the risk factors as they as they try to do that? What might the margin structure look like in 5, 10, 15 years time? What might the stock market put that business on from a multiple perspective at, at that point in time? And it's long been the case that those high growth businesses, especially those ones reinvesting for the future, sort of building out revenues, but, but deferring profits, they, they will con- look conventionally expensive on crude near-term spot multiples. Almost the, the, the more exciting and the more relevant and the more dynamic the business the, the more likely it's going to look very different in 10 years time. And, you know, if you had perfect visibility on, on cash flows, you know, businesses are fundamentally easy to value on that basis. It's just knowing what those cash flows will be is is hard. So valuation, it is a forward looking task. You, you have to build that mental model of, of what this business might look like. So when it comes to the portfolio, we, you know, we're very comfortable at doing that. That that's a core part of how we assess these businesses. We own a hundred stocks where we're where we're very comfortable with the valuation and, and our hypotheses for where those businesses may get to. It, it becomes a lot harder trying to extrapolate that to a, a broader US market where there will be thousands and thousands of companies. So I can't speak for can't speak for all those businesses. But no, it doesn't it doesn't to me feel like you know valuations are off a chart bonkers. For it's just a very dynamic world and and you've always had to be forward thinking and creative as to how you approach valuation. That raises the question possibly that there may now be a a risk that markets have have recovered so energetically since the depths of the of the market fall around the end of March that investors are no longer factoring in the risks of a, a second wave of coronavirus. I just wondered whether that worries you. I, I did notice that you've got you've got around seven percent of the fund in cash. And I was wondering whether you are planning to use that to go shopping if if there is another sell off. Yes, the stock markets are, are fickle. That that's one unfortunate aspect around being a, a long term equity investor and short termism and, and volatility are rife. And I, I can moan about that, but I'm never going to change that. So that's just a constant really in terms of that that backdrop. Another constant would be that the, the, there's always risks on the horizon, that the future by definition is uncertain. And we, we, we as investors in Bailey Gift, we don't spend significant time trying to predict what is essentially unpredictable, be it geopolitical shocks, economic events, or indeed viral pandemics and, and particularly how they play out. Almost just the complexity of those challenges and the, the numerous inputs, it, it makes forecasting around them and all the second and third order effects so, so, so difficult. 
but you can try and predict the broad direction of uh, sort of industries, technologies, uh, and indeed the companies that sort of use those. And that, that that's essentially what we seek to do. And having done that for many, many years, what you learn is that that, that longer term direction that, that those technologies, those companies, those industries move to, it, it tends to have very little to do with with politics, economics, or, or, or pandemics. It, it works to a sort of different agenda. We're very pleased with how the fund has done. We, we are incredibly excited about the future of what stands ahead of our companies and what we think they will achieve. Absolutely, we're excited about that. Do we think that this crisis derails that in any way? Well, no, it arguably accelerates bits of it, not, not just from a pure growth rate perspective, but also from a competitive dynamic perspective. Some of these businesses now, are, they're, they're, they're the strong players in their field, just at the point that that field really begins to take off. And, and boy, the pattern you've seen before is the strong get stronger in these sorts of environments. Well, we're comfortable having, a, I would say, a degree of optionality and, and opportunism in terms of how we exploit that through cash in the fund. Yeah, to, to use your analogy, it's a shopping list that we will, we will tend, to, tend to use when those opportunities arise. That there's new bits of work that are being concluded in the fund currently so yeah happy with that well that was uh, douglas brody manager of the bailey gifford global discovery fund thought there's some very interesting um, observations and thoughts in there we are now joined by theodore diloff fund analyst at interactive investor who is going to name his super 60 fund choice for this episode this week i will focus on linzer train uk equity fund which is run by one of the industry's well-known managers nick train it aims to achieve capital and income growth and provide a total return in excess of the FTSE All Share Index by investing in a high-quality concentrated portfolio of UK equities. Train follows the investment philosophy of Warren Buffett, investing in exceptional high-quality companies for the very long term. His philosophy is to invest in a durable cash generative businesses that will still be profitable in over 20 years' time. Train also finds that companies with brands or franchises of great durability and value are not only rare, but also appear to be undervalued by other investors for most of the time. He also believes that forming a high conviction concentrated portfolio should better reduce the risk over the long term rather than having a huge number of holdings. So what um, specifically does it invest in in the UK market? The first point to mention is that Nick Train selects his stocks entirely on their individual merits and pays absolutely no attention to the micro picture. The portfolio typically holds about 20 to 30 companies with a strong bias towards large cap high quality names. Almost 90% of the fund is invested actually in FTSE 100 companies. Since launching in 2006, there have been relatively few changes in the portfolio. For instance, in December last year, the manager bought a stake in PZ Cousins, which was the first holding since 2010. Currently, among the fund's top holdings, investors could find multinational consumer brands company Unilever, British beverage alcohol company Diageo, Heineken, and the London Stock Exchange Group. Those are some incredible statistics in terms of how rarely Nick Train introduces new holdings into the funds with just seven purchases and six sales in 14 years. That must be some sort of record for a fund manager. Performance has been incredibly strong both over the long and short term. As an example, over five years, the fund delivered 58% total return compared to 15% for the FTSE All Share Index and just 12% for the UKO company sector. Looking ahead, due to uh, its portfolio positioning, the fund might be well positioned to benefit from the loosening of COVID-19 measures and it has large exposure to consumer staple sector. That includes positions in beverages with around 22% of the overall portfolio, food producers with around 9% and travel and leisure with 2%. So finally, which sort of investors do you think that this fund will particularly suit? 
This fund is suitable to form the core of a portfolio and could be held for the very long term. As portfolio is benchmark and sector unconstrained, it may look very different from the FTSE All Share Index and performance is likely to substantially deviate from its benchmark. Finally, investors should bear in mind that the fund's quality growth features could be diversified by blending it with a value-focused UK equity fund in a well-diversified portfolio. Thank you, Theodore, and to all of our guests. We'll be back in a fortnight's time.